The Darkness in Us is a true crime podcast that covers cases containing information not suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, everybody, and welcome to The Darkness in Us. I'm your host, Hannah, and here I talk about true crime cases from all over the world, getting a closer look at some of the darkest among us. You can expect the use of adult language and sensitive topics that you may find disturbing. Each episode contains trigger warnings, and if you're not able to listen, feel free to skip over that episode and catch the next one. Now let's talk true crime. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Darkness in Us. Today is episode number three. If this is your first time listening, then welcome for the first time. You can follow us on Instagram at The Darkness in Us Podcast. We're also now on Facebook as well at The Darkness in Us, a true crime podcast. I post pictures on both of them of the cases that I cover and just some other true crime related things. So make sure to go check us out and follow us while you're there. Um, Today, we're going to take a deep dive as we venture through this episode. The case I'm covering is actually not the one I plan to cover, um, at least not yet, but I chose to cover it now instead of later because CBS News recently released two articles on this case, and 48 Hours aired a special just last Saturday, February 5th, on the case as well, all of which um, I will link in the show notes if you want to check them out. So, if you're wondering what this case is, we're going to be talking about the tragic and unsolved yogurt shop murders that took place in Austin, Texas in 1991. Now, as I mentioned, the reason I chose to go ahead and cover this case is because of the articles and the 48-hour special. They both just kind of bring the case back to the light, and I really just appreciate when unsolved cases don't fall through the cracks, um, because unfortunately, they do sometimes. So, um, you know, it's just really important that they stay relevant and, you know, whether that be talking about them, sharing them, you know, so on and so forth, you just never know what may lead to solving the case even years down the road. So, um, when I saw the articles, I just kind of knew like this was the case that I had to cover for this episode since it was all kind of happening right now. So as always, a couple of trigger warnings for this episode are rape, sexual assault of a minor, murder, arson, and bondage. So let's go ahead and get into it. Every year marks another year, you know, that there's no closure. Yeah, I still have insomnia 30 years after the fact. I wish I'd solved a crime for the families. We tried. It's been 30 years since emergency services were called to put out a fire at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop in Austin, Texas. As firefighters put out the flames, they unfortunately discovered a horrific scene that would haunt the city of Austin to this day. In 1991, Austin, Texas was a fairly safe area. The population at the time was right under 600,000 and life for most families was seemingly normal. However, The horrors that were discovered on the night of December 6th would quickly change that. Officers that were out patrolling the area received a call over the radio that the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop was on fire. Fire services were dispatched, and once the fire was put out, the burnt bodies of four individuals were discovered. Firefighters noticed that not only had the bodies been burned, but they were also tied up, gagged, and each had been shot in the head. 
Officers noticed that the bodies were that of young girls, not adults, who were later identified as 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison, her 15-year-old sister, Sarah Harbison, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, and 13-year-old Amy Ayers. Officers on scene radioed Sergeant John Jones. He was the only homicide detective on duty that night and, coincidentally enough, was being filmed by a local CBS reporter who was doing a special on what it was like for homicide detectives in big cities. However, neither Sergeant Jones or the CBS reporter expected to get the call that they got. So before going on, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the girls and just their lives before the murders and how they all sort of came to know one another. Jennifer Harbison was born on May 9th, 1974, and Sarah Harbison, who was born on October 28th, 1976, were sisters who had actually spent most of their childhood in Texarkana. However, when Jennifer was five and Sarah was two, their parents, Barbara and Mike, divorced, and the girls moved with their mom to Austin, Texas. Their mom went on to get remarried to a man named Frank, who became the girl's stepdad, and their dad got remarried to the girl's new stepmom, Debbie. Despite the divorce and the distance, the girls remained close with their dad, and they also had great relationships with their step-parents. Initially, when they moved to Austin, Jennifer and Sarah attended a private Catholic middle school, but once they were approaching high school, they decided that they wanted to attend Lanier High School to experience what public school was like. Being the older of the two sisters, Jennifer was the first to attend Lanier. There, she participated in sports, served as the student speaker of the house, and joined the Future Farmers of America Club. A teacher of Jennifer's later wrote about her, saying, quote, She brought joy into the classroom. She was more excited about life than any kid I'd ever known. She was one of the best that Lanier has ever had. A few years later, Sarah was finally able to begin high school and was a freshman when Jennifer was a senior. Like her sister, Sarah did very well in school. She was a student athlete playing volleyball, basketball, and was on the JV cheer squad. She also served as a student council representative and joined the FFA club like Jennifer. The school's principal went on to say about Sarah, quote, She had already established herself as assertive and enthusiastic, a vital member of the freshman class. She was a leader, clearly a kid who was going to make a mark on the place. Like most seniors, Jennifer was getting herself ready for what was to come after high school. She was looking forward to college and had recently been gifted a Chevy S10 by her dad. There was, however, a stipulation with this. Number one, Jennifer had to make the payments on the truck, and number two, she had to drive her sister around from time to time. And I thought that was really sweet for her dad to make sure that that was a stipulation because to me it just kind of showed that he wanted to make sure that they bonded. And, you know, Jennifer and Sarah did have a good relationship, so it really wasn't like that big of a deal anyways, but I thought it was um, just really sweet that you know, technically it was a stipulation and it was, you know, probably just because he wanted them to be able to spend time together. So to make the payments on the truck, Jennifer needed to get a job. She started working at a grocery store, but later went on to take a job working at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, thanks to her friend Eliza Thomas for recommending it. Eliza Thomas was born in Austin, Texas on May 16, 1974 to Maria and James Thomas. She had one sister named Sonora, who was five years younger than her, but despite their age difference, the two were very close. 
Unfortunately, when Eliza was in elementary school, her parents got divorced and Eliza went to live with her mom while her sister Sonora went to live with her dad. I'm not exactly sure why the two went separately. Um, Sources really didn't give any specific details, but that does kind of happen in divorce sometimes. One parent will get one child and the other parent will get the other, so, you know, that could have been why. But either way, they remained close, so that was the good thing about it. When Eliza was old enough to start high school, she initially attended McCullum High School, but after her sophomore year, she transferred to Lanier High School to participate in their FFA program. She had a love for animals and dreamed about becoming a veterinarian, so this program was uh, kind of right up her alley, if you will. Um, Through the FFA program, Eliza and Jennifer grew to be fast friends, and they were actually both nominated for FFA Queen in their senior year. And while some girls might have, you know, let that come between their friendship because of their own desire to win or just general, like, cattiness that you sometimes get with girls, um, Eliza and Jennifer were the opposite, and they actually loved the fact that they were both nominated. In addition to this, not only was Eliza in Lanier's FFA program, but she actually took a welding and small engineer class, which I thought was pretty badass because... It's just not something that girls typically do or, you know, at least not that we hear about girls typically doing. And she actually did so well that she went on to participate in the agriculture mechanic program. So in the midst of everything she was already doing, Eliza also began working at the yoga shop. Now I will tell you about the fourth and youngest victim in the case, Amy Ayers. Amy Ayers was born on January 31st, 1978, to Robert and Pam Ayers. She was Robert and Pam's second child after her older brother, Sean, and like the other girls, Amy was an animal lover. Sources said that she was also a fan of country music, specifically George Strait, who sources also said she had a crush on, and same. I think a lot of people can probably agree with that, um... Amy grew up on a farm, she took care of animals, and she began riding horses from the age of three. When Amy got a little older, she got involved in FFA at Lanier High School, and that's actually how she ended up meeting the three other girls, and where she and Sarah specifically became close friends due to their close ages and just their shared interests overall. So now we're going to fast forward to the day that the unthinkable happened to these four girls. Um, Just a trigger warning again as well, there will be discussion of murder, bondage, rape, sexual assault of a minor, and arson. On December 6th, Jennifer, Sarah, Eliza, and Amy all woke up, got ready for school, and went about their days as usual. After school, Jennifer went to her boyfriend's house and hung out with him until a little bit later in the evening when she had to head home to get ready for her 7 p.m. shift at the yogurt shop. Before her shift, though, she had to take her sister, Sarah, and Amy to the North Cross Mall, which was actually their first trip to the mall by themselves. After this, Sarah and Amy planned on having a sleepover at the Harbison's and having Jennifer bring them home. Now, as far as Eliza, I didn't find much about her activities after school, but she was scheduled to work that night alongside Jennifer and the two of them would be the only ones to work and the ones that would close the shop at 11. So as they were working, their shift was going along pretty normal 
Um, a patron by the name of Lucella Jones stopped by and was picking up some yogurt for her husband, but she was not the only patron there. Lucilla went on to tell officers that when she got there, she saw two teenage boys sitting at a table near the front of the yogurt shop. She stated that they were occupied by some sort of bag that they had and described the boys saying they had shaggy or unkept hair. They had darker skin, potentially having Hispanic origins, although she wasn't quite sure, and that they made her, like, just kind of feel uneasy overall. I'm not exactly sure if it was... Um, their appearance or maybe the bag or a combination or what, but she was reported to say that they just kind of gave her like a bad feeling. So around nine o'clock, Jennifer took a break to go pick up Sarah and Amy from the mall. She brought them back and the plan was for them to all ride back to the Harbison's house after the yogurt shop was closed. Shortly after around 930, Eliza's mom actually stopped by the yogurt shop, which sources said was pretty regular for both of their parents to do. She bought some yogurt while she was there and chatted with the girls, and because nothing seemed really like out of the ordinary, she left. So around 10 o'clock, a security arrived at the store to get some yogurt, and while he was in line, he noticed that the guy in front of him was acting a bit strange. The guy, he said, was asking to use the restroom and seemed a bit fidgety or sort of nervous. He said that the guy bought a can of soda and that the girls told him that he could go back behind the counter to use the restroom. Now, that was actually the opposite of what the girls had been told to do. They were told not to let anyone use the bathroom, that it would be for employees only. So, I'm not sure what made them, you know, let him go that night, but... He went to the bathroom and the security guard was now next in line. So he placed his order and unfortunately, the young guy never came back out, so he left without seeing him again. There was one final sale at 1042 to a couple coming from a movie. They stated later that while they were waiting for their order, they noticed two men sitting at a table closer to the register. The two men were acting in a way that, you know, prompted the couple to get a better look at their faces, but... Um, They did say later on that they noticed they had either thick sweaters or jackets on and that one was a little more muscular and one was a little skinnier. Um, Unfortunately, that was all that they were able to say because they didn't get a good look at their faces, but they did claim that the two men were there. So at this point, once the couple had left, the girls began to clean. And if you've ever worked retail, you know that usually you start getting things ready for closing before the actual closing time. That way you can kind of shut down quickly and just get out. So one of the girls began wiping tables down and was putting chairs on top of the tables, which is important to note because after the incident, it was reported that the chairs that the two guys were sitting in were never put up. Right before midnight at 1147, A police officer patrolling the area radioed in a fire that was coming from the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop. Fire services were immediately dispatched, and upon arrival, firefighter Renee Garza noted that the closed sign was facing outwards and also that the lights were off. As the flames were put out, David DeVoe, Renee Garza's partner, pointed towards an object and said, quote, is that a foot? And that is just very eerie. When I read it, I was like, oh, I got full body chills. It still freaks me out reading it now because I just couldn't imagine being in that situation. So police arrived at the scene and called Sergeant John Jones over the radio. 
being that he was the only homicide detective on duty that night, he headed straight to the yogurt shop. The unrecognizable bodies, later determined to be Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza, were found stacked on top of one another at the back of the store. Amy's body, um, which was also unrecognizable at the time, was found separate from the girls, but the reason isn't quite known. They had all four been burned, gagged, bound, and shot in the head execution style. An investigation began, and just eight days after the murders, Maurice Pierce was arrested. At the time of his arrest, he was also carrying the same caliber of handgun as one of the guns that was used in the murders, which was a 22 caliber. And of course, this doesn't mean that he did anything, but it certainly didn't help his case with the police. So Sergeant Jones took him in and took his statement, and Pierce actually implicated not only himself, but three other boys, which were Forrest Welburn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen. However, as they continued to question him and spoke with the other boys, um, Pierce's story began to become a little shaky, and he was ultimately no longer credible. Um, the other boys also denied involvement, and there was just not enough evidence to press any charges against them, so they had to let him go. This sent investigators searching for other suspects, and they had tons. Um, there were tons of leads that had come through, and not only that, but six confessions were made. Six different people confessed to a crime that they were ultimately determined to have not committed, which is just insane. And I hate when that happens. I don't know why people do that, but six people did it in this case. So months went by that eventually turned into years, and by the two-year anniversary of the murders, officers on the case had investigated over 5,000 leads, none of which led to an arrest, unfortunately. Sergeant Jones had mutually been reassigned to a different area. Um, this was kind of for two reasons. One, they wanted to give the case like a fresh set of eyes. And then also, Sergeant Jones just had to kind of remove himself from what had consumed him for two years. But in 1999, eight years after the murders, the new investigators on the case had actually arrested four men. However, these men were not new to the task force. They arrested Maurice Pierce, Forrest Welburn, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen. Sound familiar? <laughs> the same four boys that were questioned in 1991 and eventually released on lack of evidence were now all being arrested for the murders. Now, at this time, Sergeant Jones, who was the initial detective and questioned the boys in 1991, um, was excited when he heard the news because for him, they did everything they could in 91 and just didn't have enough evidence. So he thought that this meant that the new detectives must have some sort of new evidence to make the arrest. However, that wasn't the case. Um, no new evidence had surfaced and the new officers on the case had no real physical evidence to tie the foreman to the murders. They did, however, have two new confessions from Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen. Scott confessed first after police questioned him for four days, which we know is just not the way that that should be done, um, you know, guilty or not. Like, there's a way to go about interrogations, and four days is just absolutely crazy. 
Um, Scott claimed the men planned just to rob the yogurt shop, but that somehow the murders happened instead, despite the plan. Springsteen's confession matched up with Scott's for the most part, but he also added, after officers kept questioning him, that he did rape one of the girls. So, charges were dropped against Pierce and Wellborn due to lack of evidence, again, and failure to indict. But being that there were the confessions from Scott and Springsteen, those two were taken to trial. In 2001, almost 10 years after the murders, Springsteen was now on trial and facing the death penalty. He and Scott were tried separately, so prosecutors actually used their confessions against each other. And just go ahead and stick that in your pocket to remember for later because it will come back up. Springsteen's trial lasted three weeks and the jury deliberated for 13 hours, finding him guilty for the murders and he was sentenced to death. In 2002, Scott was now on trial, and just like in Springsteen's trial, prosecutors used the confessions against him. He was also found guilty, but was sentenced to life in prison instead of death. So, fast forward four years to 2006, and remember that piece about the confessions being used against each other? Well, courts decided that Scott and Springsteen's constitutional rights were violated because the Sixth Amendment gives defendants the right to confront their accuser. And since they were tried separately and the confessions were used against each other, but they weren't able to confront their accuser, their Sixth Amendment right had been violated, resulting in their convictions being set aside. So again, we fast forward to 2009. District Attorney Rosemary Lindbergh wasn't satisfied with the reversal of the convictions, and she decided that she wanted to retry the case. Her office ordered YSTR DNA tests to be performed, and they were going to use a vaginal DNA sample that was collected in 1991 to run through the test. Now, YSTR test is a type of DNA test that specifically searches for male DNA only. The type of test wasn't available in 1991, but by 2009, the technology had advanced, which gave them the option. The sample they had that they wanted to test was only a partial male DNA sample, but it was enough to test, so they moved forward. The results, however, ended up shocking everybody. So they were using this test to try to prove that Springsteen and Scott were guilty. They thought that the DNA would match either one of them and they would prove that they were guilty, but when they ran the test... The sample that was tested was found to not match Scott or Springsteen, nor Wilburn or Pierce. So not one of the four men was a match to the DNA. So this was monumental. Uh, Number one, it ruled them out officially as suspects. But number two, it proved that their confessions were coerced because, remember, Springsteen had admitted to raping one of the girls. So, charges were dropped in 2009, and the men were officially released, but they were not exonerated. That meant that they could be tried again anytime at a later date. So, in the 48-hour special, one of Scott and Springsteen's defense attorneys, Amber Fairley, shared her theory as to who the DNA belonged to. She said that she was certain that the DNA sample belonged to 
either one of the two men that witnesses saw sitting in the yogurt shop the night of the murders. And she was referring to one of the two men that were occupied by the bag that I was telling you about. So police did try to track down the men, but unfortunately to no avail. In 2017, an Austin police investigator searched the public DNA database um, to see if he would get any kind of match on the sample. And he actually did get what seemed to be a match. However, the original sample wasn't a complete DNA profile. So once they tested it further, they found that the match they thought they had turned out to not be a match after all. This was sad news for the case, but, you know, it doesn't rule out future use of DNA as the technology continues to advance and potentially, you know, solving the case one day. So as of today, Sergeant Jones still remembers all of the girls and frequently thinks about their families. He also attends church and sings in his choir where he says that he feels relaxed. What members of the families that are still alive, because unfortunately some have passed on, still have hope for answers. And just one last little sweet thing to kind of end on a positive note is that Sergeant Jones, on the night of the murders, wore a green and white striped shirt, and he promised the families that he would wear it again once the case was solved. He's only worn the shirt one time, which was on the night of December 6th, but says that he hopes to wear it again soon. So that is the case of the Austin, Texas yogurt shop murders. So I hope you enjoyed learning about this case. Um, There's nothing joyous about this case. Uh, It is sad and it breaks my heart for the girls and their families. But hopefully by keeping the case relevant and, you know, technology advancing and people just coming forward, these girls will finally get the justice that they so deeply deserve. So until next time, go check us out on Instagram at the Darkness and Us podcast. Also on Facebook at The Darkness and Us, a true crime podcast. And if you like the podcast so far, I feel like I'm saying podcast, podcast, podcast. <laughs> um, but if you do like it so far, um, go ahead and just please leave a little review. You don't have to write anything. You can just hit the little stars. Um, it would help out a lot just to kind of get the podcast out there. And if you're listening on Spotify, go ahead and follow and you will get updates on new releases. So have a wonderful week and I will talk to you on the next one. Bye.